0: There's an old saying that a stitch in time saves nine. If you put one stitch into a small tear, you can prevent it from becoming bigger and avoid needing nine stitches down the road. In 1937, people started saying of Supreme Court Justice Owen Roberts' vote in a case called West Coast Hotel v. Parrish that it was the switch in time that saved nine. In this case, the switch was Roberts' vote with the court's progressives to uphold a minimum wage law for women in the state of Washington. The nine that he saved were the nine justices of the Supreme Court. What he saved them from was Franklin Roosevelt's court-packing plan. In a series of cases between 1933 and 1936, the Supreme Court had struck down important parts of Roosevelt's New Deal. We talked about one of those cases back in Episode 9, about the non-delegation doctrine. It was the 1935 case of Schechter Poultry v. United States, where the court struck down the National Industrial Recovery Act. And for years, the Supreme Court had also struck down economic regulations at the state and national levels for either going beyond Congress's authority under the Commerce Clause or for violating property rights and the freedom of contract. These include cases striking down the Child Labor Act of 1916, as we discussed last episode, as well as cases striking down maximum hours laws and minimum wage laws and other economic regulations in the states. In popular memory, the Supreme Court in the 1930s was divided between four conservatives, four liberals or progressives, in a swing vote. The New Deal-friendly press at the time dubbed the conservatives the Four Horsemen, an allusion to the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse in the Book of Revelation. And in 1935, the swing justice, Owen Roberts, started regularly voting with the conservatives. The Four Horsemen became five, and Roosevelt feared that the Supreme Court would hold a permanent veto on the most important aspects of the New Deal. What happened next gives us a good case study in constitutional politics and constitutional change. On November 3rd, 1936, Americans across the nation cast their votes for the next president of the United States. Roosevelt was up for re-election against Republican Alf Landon of Kansas, and Landon got thumped. Roosevelt won 60.8% of the popular vote and 523 electoral votes. Landon won Maine and Vermont only. If you look at an electoral map of 1936, you see just a sea of blue and two states in red. Roosevelt won everything else, including Landon's home state of Kansas. Roosevelt interpreted the election as a referendum on the New Deal, and he took the results as a popular mandate to push forward with his policies. But, of course, the Supreme Court still stood in his way. Shortly after his second term began, the Democrats in Congress began working on the Judicial Procedures Reform Bill of 1937, The bill would add an additional justice to the Supreme Court for every justice on the court who was over 70 years old, and that would have allowed Roosevelt to add six new justices. He would get to nominate them, and with the advice and consent of the Democrat-controlled Senate, he would appoint them, and then he would have a New Deal-friendly majority on the Supreme Court. The details of the bill became public in February, and then in March, Roosevelt took his case to the American people. Listen to this remarkable fireside chat from March 9, 1937.
1: In the last four years, the sound rule of giving statutes the benefit of all reasonable doubt has been cast aside. The court has been acting not as a judicial body, but as a policy-making body. When the Congress has sought to stabilize national agriculture, to improve the conditions of labor, to safeguard business against unfair competition. To protect our national resources, and in many other ways to serve our clearly national needs, the majority of the court has been assuming the power to pass on the wisdom of these acts of the Congress and to approve or disapprove the public policy written into these laws. That is not only my accusation. It is the accusation of most distinguished justices of the present Supreme Court. I have not the time to quote to you all the language used by dissenting justices in many of these cases. But in the case holding the Railroad Retirement Act unconstitutional, for instance, Chief Justice Hughes said in a dissenting opinion, that the majority opinion was a departure from sound principles and placed an unwarranted limitation upon the Commerce Clause, and three other justices agreed with him. In the case holding the AAA unconstitutional, Justice Stone said of the majority opinion that it was a tortured construction of the Constitution, and two other justices, agreed with him. In the case holding the New York minimum wage law unconstitutional, Justice Stone said that the majority were actually reading into the Constitution their own personal economic predilections, and that if the legislative power is not left free to choose the methods of solving the problems of poverty, subsistence, and health, of large numbers in the community, then government is to be rendered impotent. And two other justices agreed with him. In the face of these dissenting opinions, there is no basis for the claim made by some members of the court that something in the Constitution has compelled them regretfully to thwart the will of the people. In the face of such dissenting opinions, it is perfectly clear that, as Chief Justice Hughes has said, we are under a Constitution, but the Constitution is what the judges say it is. The Court, in addition to the proper use of its judicial functions, has improperly set itself up as a third house of the Congress, a super legislature as one of the justices has called it, reading into the Constitution words and implications which are not there, and which were never intended to be there. We have therefore reached the point as a nation where we must take action to save the Constitution from the court, and the court from itself. We must find a way to take an appeal from the Supreme Court to the Constitution itself. We want a Supreme Court which will do justice under the Constitution and not over it. In our courts, we want a government of laws and not of men. I want, as all Americans want, an independent judiciary as proposed by the framers of the Constitution. That means a Supreme Court that will enforce the Constitution as written, that will refuse to amend the Constitution by the arbitrary exercise of judicial power. Judicial say so. It does not mean a judiciary so independent that it can deny the existence of facts which are universally recognized. How, then, could we proceed to perform the mandate given us? It was said in last year's Democratic Platform, and here are the words, if these problems cannot be effectively solved within the Constitution, we shall seek such clarifying amendments as will assure the power to enact those laws adequately to regulate commerce, protect public health and safety, and safeguard economic security. In other words, we said we would seek an amendment only if every other possible means by legislation were to fail. When I commenced to review the situation with the problem squarely before me, I came by a process of elimination to the conclusion that short of amendments, the only method which was clearly constitutional and would at the same time carry out other much-needed reforms was to infuse new blood into all our courts. We must have men worthy and equipped to carry out impartial justice. But at the same time, we must have judges who will bring to the courts a present-day sense of the Constitution, judges who will retain in the courts The judicial functions of a court and reject the legislative powers which the courts have today assumed it is well for us to remember that in 45 out of the 48 states of the union judges are chosen not for life but for a period of years in many states judges must retire at the age of 70 Congress has provided financial security by offering life pensions at full pay for federal judges on all courts who are willing to retire at 70. In the case of Supreme Court justices, that pension is $20,000 a year. But all federal judges, once appointed, can, if they choose, hold office for life, no matter how old they may get to be. What is my proposal? It is simply this. Whenever a judge or justice of any federal court has reached the age of 70 and does not avail himself of the opportunity to retire on a pension, a new member shall be appointed by the president then in office, with the approval, as required by the Constitution, of the Senate of the United States. That plan has two chief purposes. By bringing into the judicial system a steady and continuing stream of new and younger blood, I hope first to make the administration of all federal justice, from the bottom to the top, speedier and therefore less costly. Secondly, to bring to the decision of social and economic problems younger men who have had personal experience and contact with modern facts and circumstances under which average men have to live and work. This plan will save our national constitution from hardening of the judicial arteries. The number of judges to be appointed would depend wholly on the decision of present judges now over 70, or those who would subsequently reach the age of 70. If, for instance, any one of the six justices of the Supreme Court, now over the age of 70, should retire as provided under the plan, no additional place would be created. Consequently, Although there never can be more than 15, there may be only 14, or 13, or 12, and there may be only nine. There is nothing novel or radical about this idea. It seeks to maintain the federal bench in full vigor. It has been discussed and approved by many persons of high authority ever since a similar proposal passed the House of Representatives in 1869. Why was the age fixed at 70? Because the laws of many states and the practice of the civil service, the regulations of the Army and Navy, and the rules of many of our universities and of almost every great private business enterprise commonly fix the retirement age at 70 years or less the statute would apply to all the courts in the federal system. There is general approval so far as the lower federal courts are concerned. The plan has met opposition only so far as the Supreme Court of the United States itself is concerned. But, my friends, if such a plan is good for the lower courts, it certainly ought to be equally good for the highest court, from which there is no appeal
0: that was on march 9th 20 days later the supreme court decided a case called west coast hotel v. parish about a state minimum wage law in washington the court upheld the law and signaled its departure from past conservative precedents on economic regulations and owen roberts the swing justice sided with the majority leaving the four horsemen alone in dissent roberts's vote became known as the switch in time that saved the nine because the judicial reform bill faltered after that. The court remained at nine justices, and the New Deal legislation prevailed, really, from that point on. Roberts always denied that the president's fireside chat had anything to do with his vote in the Parrish case. But something important did happen in 1937, and the court's Commerce Clause jurisprudence after Roosevelt's landslide reelection was never really the same. Over the next few years, Roosevelt would replace each of the four horsemen with his own judicial appointments. Van Devanter retired in June 1937, Sutherland followed in 1938, Butler died in 1939, and McReynolds then retired in 1941. It was a peaceful revolution, but a revolution nonetheless. And we see the marks of that revolution for the court's Commerce Clause jurisprudence in two important cases from that era. National Labor Relations Board v. Jones and Laughlin Steele decided in April 1937, just after the switch in time and in Wickard v. Filburn, decided in 1942 after the Four Horsemen had been replaced and the revolution was complete. The decision in the National Labor Relations Board case was handed down just a couple of weeks after the switch in time. It involved a dispute about the National Labor Relations Act of 1935. That act gave employees the right to organize unions and bargain collectively through representatives that they chose, and it created the National Labor Relations Board to investigate and prevent what they called unfair labor practices that affected interstate commerce. The bill declared that its purpose was to prevent burdens or obstructions to the instrumentalities of commerce and to the things that move in commerce. The word commerce appears in the bill 69 different times. The preamble to the bill says, quote, experience has proved that protection by law of the right of employees to organize and bargain collectively safeguards from injury, impairment, or interruption and promotes the flow of commerce by removing and recognizing certain sources of industrial strife and unrest. But remember back to Hammer v. Dagenhart, when the court struck down the Child Labor Act of 1916, saying that it was clearly designed to regulate labor instead of commerce. On the old court, the pre-1937 court, there was a hard distinction between commerce and the channels of commerce on the one hand, and things like manufacturing and labor production on the other. Over the descent of the Four Horsemen, the court took a different tack in this case and upheld the National Labor Relations Act. Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes notes in the case that the argument of Jones and Laughlin Steel rests upon the proposition that manufacturing is itself not commerce. And they were, of course, relying on prior precedent that said non-commercial activities like labor that occurred within the borders of a state could be regulated by the state, but not by the federal government. But Hughes then went on to write, Although activities may be intrastate in character when separately considered, If they have such a close and substantial relation to interstate commerce that their control is essential or appropriate to protect commerce from burdens and obstructions, Congress cannot be denied the power to exercise control. Coming out of this case, then, the court softens that distinction between interstate commerce and non-commercial activities that occur inside the borders of a state. If some intrastate activity has, quote, a close and substantial relation to interstate commerce, Hughes says, then it's fair game under the Commerce Clause. That includes labor, and the federal government can now regulate the conditions of labor within the states and police unfair labor practices. According to the dissenters, the National Labor Relations Act was unconstitutional. And then they say this about federalism. Quote, the Constitution still recognizes the existence of states with indestructible powers. The Tenth Amendment was supposed to put them beyond controversy. And so, as it always does in this conversation, the question of limits comes up. What's left for the states here? Are there any activities that the federal government couldn't sooner or later regulate under the Commerce Clause? Does federalism or the Tenth Amendment provide any check to national power? And Hughes is compelled to take up the question. As he writes in the majority opinion, undoubtedly the scope of this power must be considered in the light of our dual system of government and may not be extended so as to embrace effects upon interstate commerce so indirect and remote that to embrace them in view of our complex society would effectually obliterate the distinction between what is national and what is local and create a completely centralized government. But where exactly is the line to be drawn? What makes something local and therefore off-limits to the national government? That question comes up in Wickard v. Filburn in 1942, a case that involves a disagreement about the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1938. In that act, Congress limited the amount of acreage a farmer could devote to the production of wheat. The idea was that by limiting the supply of wheat, you could stabilize the price of wheat. An Ohio farmer named Roscoe Filburn then is found in violation of the act for growing in excess of the wheat quota. But Filburn never sold his wheat. He grew it only for home consumption, for his family and his animals, and he didn't take it to sale or try to ship it in interstate commerce. Now, setting aside the wisdom of the government's policy and its application to homegrown wheat, we can ask, is it constitutional? Is it a legitimate use of Congress's power to regulate commerce among the several states? And the Supreme Court in Wickard v. Filburn says yes. But now, after the full turnover of the four horsemen and their replacement by Roosevelt appointees, the court is unanimous in its ruling. The revolution is complete. Robert Jackson writes the opinion and acknowledges, quote, the fact that this act extends federal regulation to production not intended in any part for commerce, but wholly for consumption on the farm. But still, he writes, even if the appellee's activity be local... Though it may not be regarded as commerce, it may still, whatever its nature, be reached by Congress, if it exerts a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce. But of course, Filburn's own effect on interstate commerce and wheat was quite small. But Jackson addresses that and says, although the appellee's own contribution to the demand for wheat may be trivial by itself, it's not enough to remove him from the scope of federal regulation where, as here, his contribution, taken together with that of many others similarly situated, is far from trivial." The new doctrine after the Constitutional Revolution of 1937 was this. If any local activity aggregated together with all other instances of that local activity across the country has a substantial effect on interstate commerce, then it's fair game for congressional regulation under the Commerce Clause. And so it was, two decades later, when Congress took up national legislation prohibiting racial discrimination in private businesses, that it turned to the Commerce Clause and to the precedents that had been forged in the 1930s and 1940s under the influence of Franklin Roosevelt and his appointments to the court. And so we'll look next at some of that history and the debate surrounding the Commerce Clause and the Civil Rights Act in the landmark case of Heart of Atlanta Motel v. United States. <laughs>